0: we've been for many weeks now talking about the uh, the person of Jacob in the Bible and, uh, and really what God was doing through him and kind of how God uses people who are all kinds of messed up, right? So in, a lot of us were like, okay, if God can use this guy, maybe he can use me. This, this looks, sounds like it's actually something that makes sense in my life because every time we see somebody in scripture that gets talked about and uh, their faith, sometimes it seems like they're this superhero, like they're they're just somebody who has this incredible amount of faith that we could never live up to or be able to step in those shoes or, or kind of do the same stuff that they did. But when we look at Jacob, we see a really flawed person who got it wrong most of the time and got it right some of the time. And what we see is this God who's incredibly faithful. The book of Genesis is much more about God's faithfulness than it is about the founding fathers of the faith. Um, it's not really about establishing Judaism and then Christianity at some point. It's much more about God's faithfulness. If you read Genesis through the lens of how God is faithful to people who are unfaithful, you begin to get a picture of who God is. And that's really what Genesis is about. And so, as you've been looking at Jacob, we saw somebody who was born into a very dysfunctional family. And from day one, his name was Deceiver. They basically, I mean, just imagine that being your name. You start to live up to the things that people call you. And he did. Him and his mom hatched a plot, stole the birthright from his brother Uh, first by having his brother sell him part of it and then by going and tricking their dad into giving it away and it was just this whole thing and it ended up with Esau his older brother who remember was super hairy you know like he put goat fur on his arms to fool his dad making him think he was Esau I mean dude was super hairy and he was like a man's man he was out there like hunting and you know like I don't know if anyone here watches mountain men you know Like, that's Esau. He's out living on the mountain, living off the land. He's, like, killing buffalo. That's, like, the kind of guy that Esau is. Like, if you can kill a buffalo, you're a more manly man than me. I can't do that. I don't know what to do when it comes to that, okay? This is who Esau was. And so when Esau said, Jacob, I'm going to kill you now because of what you've done in this family... He did the right thing, and he ran away. <laughs> he didn't want to die at his brother's hands, and so he runs away. And Remember, he has, on his way to uh, hang out with his uncle, he has this incredible moment where God meets him in this random place on the side of the road, right? And it's just like a nowhere spot, and yet God meets him in this place and shows him this stairway to, to heaven, and these angels ascending and descending, and, and Jesus ends up later saying that that stairway is Is Christ himself that he reaches from earth to heaven and he allows people to ascend and descend in their relationship with God. And so he, God shows Jacob this picture and he says, I'm not a God who's tied to a place. I'm tied to people and I'm tied to you. And we're going to do this thing, whether you like it or not, whether you're going to cooperate or not, I'm going to use you in the way that I want to. And I'm going to have the plans that I have in mind come to fruition. And so he goes to see his uncle who turns out to be a bigger deceiver than him And his uncle basically uses every avenue he can to manipulate and to trick Jacob into giving away all kinds of his time. So he basically signs on to be sort of a slave for 15 years so that he can marry both of Laban's daughters. It's another trickery thing that he pulls on him. In the morning, there was Leah. Uh, And so Jacob ends up basically spending 20 years with Laban And working pretty much for free. In those last six years, God restores to him all that he lost during those years of labor where he wasn't being paid. And then he finds himself in a position where he wants to now move back to his homeland. God calls him to do that. And so he leaves in the middle of the night and he runs away from Laban because he's afraid Laban's gonna try to trick him again, try to take things from him, and try to try to take his daughters back. And so he leaves in the middle of the night and God protects him through this. Laban catches up to him and God keeps Laban from uh, injuring or harming Jacob and keeps protecting him through this whole thing. And then Laban kind of goes home and Jacob's free to go. And last week we talked about how then as Jacob is nearing Esau, he's still worried that he might get killed because remember his brother is like the manliest dude ever and he's going to hold a grudge and he's worried that 20 years might not be enough. Now that's a pretty serious grudge. If 20 years it doesn't go away, you're you really, that's a, that's a tough grudge. And so as he's entering into the area where Esau is, he's making all these plans. He's splitting up his people, and he's moving them out in front of Esau, and he's trying to get a gauge for what Esau is going to do when he sees him. And he hears that Esau is coming with this entire army of people, and he's afraid. And it says he prays, and he asks God to intervene, and there are angels in their camp like they physically see angels with them, God's responding to them, he's showing them that he's with them, but then he's still sort of manipulating things and trying to send out certain delegations and work the thing, and where we pick it up is when they're basically about to meet, and I want you to know today we have just a little bit to finish to get the story to the completion spot, but then also I want to kind of sum up the story with a couple of things that we can pull out of here and take away with us, okay? So, I'm going to pick it up in Genesis, 33 chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 33, verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau. So Jacob has sent ahead of him a gift for Esau. He's got all of his family going out ahead of him. He has them in order based on how, how loved they are. We're still doing that, okay? So he's got the maidservants and their children up in the front. Then he's got Leah and her children. Then he's got Rachel and, uh, and Joseph in the back. And it's it basically in order of how much I love people is how he's put them out in front. So if if Esau decides to slaughter the people in front, that's less bad than if he's, that's essentially what's going on here. So he says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. This must've been intimidating. To be perfectly honest with you, he would've been worried about Esau in general with no one. And now he's coming with a whole army of men, right? Ready to meet him. And so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and he bowed down on the ground seven times as he approached his brother. And so as he was going, he was bowing down and then going a little bit further and bowing down and going a little bit further and bowing down to make sure that Esau knew that he wasn't a threat. And it says, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, this is an incredible moment here to have reconciliation between these two guys. And it shows how much Esau has grown in the 20 years that they've been apart. Um, And in fact, Esau had said originally, hey, I'm not going to lay my hand on Jacob until my father passes. But actually, their father, uh, Isaac, is still alive. He hasn't died yet. And so there's been time to heal. Esau has gotten over it. He's become the man in the camp. He's basically essentially gotten the birthright that he gave away. Um, Jacob didn't really take anything away from that. Uh, And so the only thing Jacob really got out of it was God's blessing and God being with him. But Esau feels good because he got the stuff. Jacob got the blessing and he got the relationship with God. And Esau got the camp and the people and the things and all the stuff. So they both are feeling pretty good about the way things went down. Uh, and the prophecy between Jacob and Esau, where it says the younger will serve the older, wasn't really about what was going to happen in that family in that moment. A lot of times when we see God's promises, we're applying them to us right now in the, in the, in the immediate. We say, God wants to bless me, so that must mean he's going to give me a great salary. Or God wants to bless me, and I'm out of a job, so he must be wanting to give me a job. Or, you know what, God wants to bless me, and so maybe it's a house that he wants to... We have all these thoughts that like there's an immediate pay off for what God, when God said that the younger would be served by the older in their situation, he wasn't talking about them and in that camp. He was talking about down the road. He was talking about the fact that God was going to build something through Jacob, a people through Jacob that would be served by the older, right? And if you continue the story out, you have a conflict between these two people. The, the Israelites' main um, foes, as we go through into the and further along in the story, as the Israelites become a people, uh, uh, one of their main foes are the Amalekites, which is essentially Esau's grandson. So they keep fighting with each other. There's conflict now that's not going to go away. But in this moment, between these two brothers, things are good. Things are good because Jacob hasn't necessarily taken anything physical from Esau, and Esau doesn't really care about the spiritual. right? So Jacob's ended up with the spiritual, and Esau's ended up with the physical. And it's okay. And this... Language that's used here makes us kind of see this idea of the prodigal son, right? Jacob returning, and what happens in the prodigal son? The father runs out, and he throws himself into a hug around, the, the, arms of the, around the, the neck of the lost son. This is the same thing that happens here. When you lose someone for that long, when you receive them back, this is the right way to receive them back, and everything is good. Everything is going to be okay, uh, but Jacob kind of still wants to hold Esau at arm's length. So take a look. It says, then Esau looked up. He saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. And so Jacob says, hey, meet my family. These are people you haven't ever known. This is really cool, okay? So here's, here's Leah, and here's Rachel, and we've got our maidservants over here, and, you know, here's these children and these ones, and here's my my beloved Joseph, right? Like, there's There's a hierarchy to the family uh, in this situation, which we know, we've talked about, is terrible. And it's still uh, an issue for for Jacob. Uh, Verse 6. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all the flocks and herds I met? And he said, to find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I, have already, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face, is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. That's kind of like, Jacob is just massaging this thing. Like, he's just working it. He's like, I'm gonna, I, I got a, a plan going here. I need to make Esau happy, and then I need to send him away. I need to get him out. I just basically need to make sure that he's not going to kill me or my family, and then he needs to go. We need to be disconnected again. And so he says, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Now, I don't know about you, but if my brother wants to give me something, it's not going to take very much, you know, talking me into it, right? Like, he makes him receive the gift. In other words, I, I want you to owe me something. I want to restore, I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not here to take anything from you, that I'm not a threat to you, and then I want to make you go away, right? So then Esau said, let us be on our way, I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord, you know that the children that I have with me are tender and I must care for the, the ewes and the cows that are nursing, their young, and if they're driven hard, just one day all the animals will die. And I know, I know we've all been in that situation, right, you know? Just can't drive the ewes much, much more. It's too much. We just, it's, you know, it's probably like going on a road trip with like, a, like an infant. You know, you have to stop every couple hours to, you know, feed the baby or whatever. And it's, it's just difficult. Like, it just makes everything go slow. So he's using this as an excuse. And it, you kind of roll your eyes because will all the animals die? Like, give me a break. Like, this language is just to make Esau go away. And you can feel Esau probably thinking like, oh, this is, man, this is the same old Jacob. Like, he hasn't really changed that much. He's manipulating me right now. Like, we're just coming back together, and I'm saying, hey, come stay with us. We got a whole extra tent set up for you. Like, it's going to be great. I got all kinds of people that will serve you. You can come restore it into the family. It will be great. And he can feel Jacob manipulating, still manipulating. None of that is probably true. So he says, so let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. And while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir." And then it says, Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. Let me call your bluff. Let me make sure that you know that I know that you are basically just making stuff up. I want to call your bluff. I'm going to leave some of my guys with you to walk you. So there's this thing going on back and forth. And he says, but Jacob says, but why do that? Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went on to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. And so Jacob went to live in Succoth. (laughs) Probably had the nicest home in Succoth. I'm guessing that the property values were pretty low based on the name of the place. It actually means shelter. uh, And they called it shelter because he built shelters for everyone that he was with. And basically, he splits again from his brother. He's like, look, this is not ever going to go back together. So let me just give you something and let me just send you away, and then let me go and do my own thing. Let me be in charge of my own thing. Let me go do my own thing. And even if it means I've got to live in Sucketh, that's what it means. Uh, and so he kind of splits. He kind of splits back again away from Esau. And you can imagine Esau, he's probably just rolling his eyes. This is actually maybe Jacob really hasn't grown up. Like maybe Jacob is still, like he couldn't just say, hey, I want to go and live somewhere else I want to have my own family. It's great to see you again. You know, we had that moment where we wept and things were okay, but I still want to make sure that you are over here doing your thing and I'm over here doing my thing. I don't really want reconciliation. I just want you to not be part of my life and to not be a threat to me, right? And Esau probably just went home and went like, well, that's the end of that. It does say that they come together later when Isaac dies to bury him, that there is some bit of a relationship put together. But as you start to see these two families branch out as they get bigger and time goes on, they become people who end up warring against each other. That there is still an animosity that is there. There's still something that doesn't get fixed. It doesn't get reconciled. There was a moment here where these two could have fully reconciled and probably, you know, helped the situation, but it's not going to happen. Jacob is taking his family and going somewhere else, and Esau is taking his family and going somewhere else. And Jacob is still struggling with the same stuff that he struggled with early on. He's still putting people in his family in levels of uh, how valuable they are to him. He's still manipulating people. He's still doing things on his own, right? There's moments where he invokes God, but he's still kind of got his plan, and he's going to work his plan. And then when his plan doesn't work, then he's going to bring God into the picture. It's kind of a backwards way of doing things. And so there's a couple takeaways from this series to like the whole thing. that I wanted to step back and say, okay, what have we learned really from studying the person of Jacob? And we've gone through his entire life and we've seen all the steps and all the pieces. And you can go back and review any of those weeks if you're interested. But there's a couple of things that really stand out uh, as we look at this story and who Jacob is. And You wonder like, why do we have this story? And this story is very imperfect. It's another good reason why when we look at the Bible, we can trust the Bible because if anyone was making the story up, they wouldn't be it wouldn't be uh, on a person like Jacob. It would be on a much better person, a much person that we would all have much more respect for. Right? This is a real guy and this is a real story, okay? So there's a couple things. First of all, you can't choose your family. I know, like shocker, right? Can't choose your family. And some of us were blessed. We got an incredible family you go back, you're like, man, my parents, my brothers and sisters, they're amazing. They have really pushed me to be who I am. And they're incredible. And some of us, we got stuck with Jacobs in our lives. We got stuck with manipulators. We got stuck with deceivers. We got stuck with people in our lives that taught us the wrong thing, that did the wrong thing to us. And there's all kinds of different situations that you might find yourself in. But The ultimate thing is you just don't get to choose who is in your family. And a lot of times we want to use the people in our family as an excuse to behave however we want. And in reality, you stand alone before God. It is your relationship with Him. Your decisions define who you are. No matter what situation you grew up in, whether you won the lottery with the best parents and siblings and grandparents ever, or whether you have no family at all, Eventually, at the end of the day, it's you personally standing before God, making decisions before Him. It is your relationship with Him that matters, and you can't blame the people around you for the things that you do. In fact, if you get into a spiral of blaming other people for the stuff that you do, you find yourself being a victim in life in general. And for a while, that was Jacob's situation. You know, he had to run away from his family, and he had to go and try to make his own way, and he kind of felt like he got. The, you know, the, the bad end of the stick just because he was coming out a minute later, and just because he wasn't so, you know, manly like his brother was, and his dad played favorites, and his mom played favorites, and everything was wrong, and everything was messed up. At the end of the day, you have to to figure this out, and if you continue paying attention to the story, and you want to read ahead, look at the person of Joseph, or Joseph's family basically sells him into slavery, does all kinds of terrible things. He finds himself in awful situations, and yet every step along the way, he does not make excuses. He does not blame God. He does not say, woe, woe is me. He basically puts his head down and makes the right decision in all of those places that he finds himself, and God continues to bless him and bless him and bless him along the way. God wants us to break the patterns uh, of the cycles of poor families in our own lives. If you come from a situation where you don't want to be like your parents, you have a chance to follow God every single day and to create the family that you wish you had growing up. Right? And we can't blame our situation on other people. We have to learn to, uh, to create the family God wants us to create, not to choose to blame the people around us. And we don't get a choice. We have to deal with what we're given. Sometimes it's amazing and other times it's difficult. Uh, one thing we saw in this under the idea of family is that polygamy is not God's design, <laughs> okay? Uh, people are like, man, the Bible's full of polygamy. You, read the stories. Nobody who's in a polygamous relationship in Scripture has anything but trouble in that relationship. God's design is in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman for a lifetime. That is the design that God has given us. Now, we live in a world where things are all kinds of messed up, and we see all kinds of different situations, and we are living in the reality of people coming from all kinds of different places. And we work with and we love and have empathy on anyone who's you know, dealing with situations like that. But God's plan is one person, one person, a lifetime. One man, one woman, a lifetime. Whenever it's two women, one man, three women, one man, in this case, four women, one man, I don't know. Are there situations where there are two men and one woman? I don't know. It's never good. Polygamy is never good. It's meant to be one-on-one. That's the goal. That's the thing. Okay, and so when we see polygamy, it is not God's design. The Bible is describing something that God is not blessing, that God does not want us to be looking for, doing, or seeing as a pattern to replicate. Polygamy is not His design. Uh, and lastly, playing favorites within your family crushes the unity of your family. And maybe you have felt this, like, "Hey, my brother or my sister was the favorite," or "Hey, you know, my dad really loved this one the most," or "My mom really loved this one." The most, And even when it's not spoken, and even when it's not communicated or outright out in the family, it still crushes the family. People in the family feel it, they know it, it is something that becomes the reality of the, of the situation, and it kills the unity within the family. And so God is calling us to create the kind of family that he wants us to create, not to allow... Uh, to allow the entire family to just kind of float and to allow these things to creep in that aren't part of his his design. Um, second idea that we can look at and find in here is that the hero of the story is God. The people in the story are all kinds of messed up. And sometimes they make a great choice. We saw it a couple places along the way with Jacob. Yeah, when he was on the side of the road and he met God, he realized what happened. He created an altar in that moment and he, he uh, you know, remembered that place. You know? And along the way, he finally figured out, hey, I've got to bring the rest of the family into some of these decisions. And he called them in and he communicated on behalf of God to the rest of his family and started to lead his family. We see him praying and calling out to God and his promises along the way when he's running away from Laban. We see moments where he's leading the family and not just allowing it to sort of you know, just float and just be there. He's taking the responsibility. But we all see all kinds of those other moments. And the story is not about the people being the heroes. It's not about their faith that we're so excited about. It's about the God who's faithful to us even when we're having trouble, even when we're not following through on what God wants, even when we're struggling in our faith. God is still there. He is still faithful. And when he decides to do something, when he promises something, he doesn't need our help to follow through on the promise. Right? We see all this manipulation to make God's promises come true, And if we would just trust God, he will be faithful. That is one of the main themes of Genesis. We see Abraham trying to force God's will. We see uh, Rachel trying to force God's will. We see Jacob trying to force God's will. And it's like God said this was going to happen, and they're trying to make it happen in their own strength. God rarely wants us to make something happen in our own strength. He almost always wants us to to have faith in his faithfulness, that he will follow through on the things that he wants to do. And underneath that idea, the hero of the story is God, is that the Old Testament is all about Jesus, right? I had a conversation with somebody. It was kind of like an aha moment. They are like, wait, the Old Testament is about Jesus? Yes, all of history is about Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. The entire thing, listen, look, none of us are, are reading up on the history of the Mesopotamians. I mean, maybe you are and you're, like, in your spare time. You know, Maybe you're out there reading on uh, the Amalekites history. You got their, you know, their, their scriptures or whatever we care about judaism we care about the jews in this situation because of jesus <laughs> he comes from them everything in the old testament is proclaiming that god loves us that he is part of our lives and that he's bringing a savior into the picture the entire old testament speaks to the person of jesus we see it all throughout the story we tried to point it out in every place we could the stairway to heaven is jesus Right When Jacob gets his flock full of spotted sheep, this is one that, that we did, didn't make the cut right the other, a couple weeks ago. J- Jesus takes the infirm, the spotted sheep, and he brings them into his uh, you know, his flock. right We see Christ throughout this whole thing. The, the, the promises that are made to these people is that one day the entire world will be blessed through them, that they will have a nation of people that come out of them, that they will have a place to dwell, and yes, we see a a a small fulfillment in in the uh, Old Testament where we have the the Jews become a very big nation and they get a place to live, right? They get a a, a promised land that they get to go into and they get to bless the world. They were called uh, the priests to the nations, although I'm not sure that they did a great job of explaining who God was to the rest of the world. So in one way, God fulfilled that promise through them, but that wasn't the promise. The promise was that one day the entire world would be blessed through Christ, That one day the entire world would have a place to be with God in heaven. That one day the entire world would, would be able to grab hold of these promises. They were all about Christ. They were not about the Jews. The Jews were a first fulfillment and Jesus was the main fulfillment. He's the reason that we study this. He's the reason that we read through this. We should see him in every story. We should see him all the way through the Old Testament. It's the most important reason to be studying this. It's all about Christ. And the last idea, the hero of the story is God, and God is faithful. Now, I know in some regard we all believe this, but if we really believe that God is faithful, then we live in a different way. We make decisions where we don't make decisions out of fear, but we make decisions out of of faith. You change the way that you do things. You, you make decisions every day to do things differently than the rest of the people around you because you are interested in pleasing the God who is faithful to us. It changes the way that you engage with the world. And we talk about being counter-cultural in the way that we live. If you serve this God, you begin to live in a way that makes you stand out among the culture, that makes you live in a different way. You make different decisions about the way that you spend your money, about the way that you raise your kids, about the, way that, the things that are most important to you, about the priorities and the decisions that you make as a family. These things, they change because you're responding to this God who is faithful to you. And this is the compelling thing about Christ. He died for us while we were still sinners. We did not do anything to earn that faithfulness. God is faithful to us, even in spite of ourselves. And lastly, I wanted to talk about is just this idea that This story is all about blessing. And Jacob essentially spends his entire life looking for and searching for blessing. I think even as children, we fall into this category where we want this blessing from our parents. right? And as we grow, we begin to want this blessing from other people in our lives. We begin to want this blessing from other family members. Sometimes we want it from bosses. Sometimes we're looking for this blessing in relationships that we have. This, this idea of wanting to be blessed is a common thing that is inside of all of us. And when we try to find the blessing that only God can give us through any other means, it derails our lives. When we look for the blessing that God wants to give us through our parents, it derails our life. When we look for the blessing that God wants to give us through our workplace, through our hobbies, through the relationships that we have, through anything that we have, it derails our life. As Jacob looks for the blessing from his parents, right, as he so desperately wants the blessing from his parents, everything gets derailed. As he looks for the blessing that he wants from Laban, everything goes awry. Even in the end, the blessing that he could receive from Esau He's always looking for it. And what is the most important moment in his his entire journey is the moment where he will not let the guy go that he's wrestling with, that he knows is God. And he says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me because that ultimately is the blessing that he needs. God wants to bless you, to be part of your life. And I don't mean it in a monetary way or in a, you know, he's gonna make you wealthy and happy. No, in fact, when God blesses people, sometimes it takes us down a different path. You know, as Paul changed, what did he deal with? He dealt with all kinds of conflict in his life from the moment he received that blessing from God. As Jacob takes on the blessing, he still is fighting his way through all kinds of things. And if you follow his story, what's really cool about it is God, after he gives him the blessing, he's, he's protected from Laban, he's protected from Esau, It says that as he um, is traveling through different places, that God brought a panic among all the villages and kept all the people from attacking them as he traveled from one place to another. He had angels that went with him as he was traveling. Like this blessing that he received uh, was God being with him and God guiding him to where he wanted him to go and God giving him a purpose. And sometimes that purpose for us is tough. It's hard. God calls us to do difficult things. But the blessing is that God is with us. That if He calls us to do it, He gives us the strength. He gives us the gifts. He gives us the drive to go ahead and do what He's called us to do. You know, this has been, you know, a very long year, (laughs) I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier as we went on vacation two weeks ago. Um, July 1st last year, uh, we transitioned completely to launching Pursuit Community Church. We went from a nice, cushy youth pastor job, and be honest, it was great. I feel like I want to get into every youth pastor network and tell everyone, you guys really aren't working that hard, I'm be honest with you. <laughs> you know, great health benefits, a steady paycheck, lots of incredible volunteers, really fulfilling ministry. And God was like, nah, I want you to go do this other thing. A lot of things you're not, you don't know how it's gonna work out. You don't know where that where that money's gonna come from. You don't know if anyone's gonna wanna join or be part of that. Uh, every conversation I had, I was like, this isn't going to end well. Um, And yet God just continued to be with us. He just continued to call us to something that was incredibly difficult. There is nothing special about me and Marty. At some point, the special thing that sets you apart from the rest of the world is your desire to be obedient to a God who's going to do the work. And faithfulness to a faithful God is never a bad thing. It's always going to guide you in the right direction. And sometimes it means that you have to be uh, humble. And you've got to accept and see and pay attention to your limitations. And you've got to trust God to fill those holes and bring those people along. And bring the, the in our situation, watching him just add one more family and one more person and one more person check. It seemed like for a while we were just opening the mailbox. This was back when people gave us money through the mail. Uh, And there was a $5,000 check. And there was another $1,000. And there was a $17 check from a a college student. (laughs) That was my favorite one. And there was a $500 and a $2,000. And we were just like stepping back and we were like, what is happening here? It felt like this thing was like in the air, and it wasn't going to work, and we didn't know if it was going to fly, and it just kept building momentum as we kept stepping back and saying, all right, God, what are you doing? What do you want to do with us? We'll just, we'll be obedient. We recognize that you're with us, and there were moments where we felt like there were angels in the camp. There were moments where we felt like we got protected from something that could have derailed the whole thing from the beginning, and now to step back and see the amount of change in the lives of the people who are here, to see Everything that God is doing in this community, like it's overwhelming to step back and think like uh, God called us to do this. I just want you to know, you don't necessarily understand what he can do with you if you're willing to be obedient. If you're willing to do what he's called you to do and see that that blessing that he gives you is not a monetary, we're still poor, it's fine, we're good, right? We got enough, we're getting by. I just did the budget for next year. We're in an incredible position. We're thinking about in the fall opening up this wall and going to a larger room. God's doing some crazy stuff in this church, and it's amazing. And it just comes down to faithfulness to a God who's faithful to you first. It just comes down to obedience to a God who will be with you through the struggle. And you might be looking at something that you think is incredibly difficult, and you're probably thinking, God wants me to do this, but I don't know if I want to. That would be what Jacob would do. He'd say, I don't want to. He'd say, I'll do it myself. I'll come up with my own plan. And then he'd fail. And then God would tell him to continue down the path that he called him to originally. And then God would show him that he's with him. And then he'd be able to accomplish the things that God called him to do. If you want the best life that's available to you, it starts with obedience. It starts with humility. It starts with stepping back and saying, I'm willing to do what God has called me to do, even if it hurts even if it's hard, because I know he'll be with me and he'll give me what I need to do that thing. And that is, I think, the the main takeaway, is that even in our unfaithfulness, even in our imperfection, God wants to still use us in our obedience. That's what he's calling us to. And So my question for you as you process this whole sermon series is, what is he calling you to do? Where do you need to be obedient? Where do you need to step back and stop controlling things and have faith in the God who's had faith in you before you ever did? So I'm going to ask for you guys to do one thing this week. As you process, and maybe this is just your first week here, so you're off the hook. But if you've been here a couple weeks and you've been processing this sermon series as we've been going through it, I would love for you to take one takeaway from this whole sermon series, and I would like you to do something with that. Okay? I'm going to give you a couple options. You can either take this thing and teach a non-believer something that you learned about the Bible or about God through this sermon series, which would be the most difficult thing that I would ask you to do, like to go and tell somebody else, hey, this is what I learned in my church. This is pretty cool. What do you think about this, right? That would be difficult area number one. Number two would be uh, you could encourage our staff and me and our leaders in the church by sending us an email. Hey, here's something I learned during this sermon series, right? Here's something that was uh, stood out to me or something I'm processing so that we can pray for you and support you in that. Or number three, you could post something somewhere. Facebook, Instagram, I don't know, whatever. Probably not Instagram because it'd be really hard to read through the whole thing. Uh, and nobody, really they just look at pictures, right? So, but post something somewhere to, to, to show somebody else something that you learned through the process. To take something from this sermon series and then to share it with the world, either with an individual or publicly or to send an email just to say, hey, here's something I learned. Here's what I'm processing. Here's what I'm doing. That's your, that's your homework. That's your takeaway that I'm asking you to do. Because I think God wants to do a lot of things in a lot of people's lives. And I'd love to encourage you and be praying for you and to be with you on that, on that journey. All right? Let me pray and then we're going to go ahead and close with a song here. God, thank you for your faithfulness. First and foremost, we recognize that we are very flawed people. We bounce back and forth between serving ourselves and serving you. On our best days, we're focused on what you want us to be focused on, and on our worst days, we're feeling sorry for ourselves. God, I just pray that you would make it so clear to every person in this room what it is you're calling them to do. How you want to be faithful to them. How you want to Walk them through what you've called them to. Some of those things, I think, are probably really difficult. So God, I pray that you'd show them your faithfulness. That even when we feel like Jacob, where we're struggling, God, that you would show us that you are with us in those moments. You made it clear through that person of Jacob that you wanted to have relationships with people who struggle and seek after you and pursue you. God, would you let that be something that does really define this church and the people in it. That we are all about that pursuit. That we won't stop coming after you and what you've called us to do. We won't shrink back from the things that you've asked us to do, God. And that we'll celebrate every time we see you be faithful in that process. Thank you for being with us as we follow your lead and as we're obedient to you. God, we're just... We're thankful that you love us, that you want to have a relationship with us, and that you're in it with us. In Jesus' name.